Good morning and welcome to the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. We're a spiritual community dedicated to the free search for truth and meaning, and we're glad that you're here. I would like to offer a special welcome to those of you who are visiting with us. We're very glad that you are here, and if you have questions or comments about this faith or this congregation, please do see the knowledgeable and friendly people at the membership table and visitor table out there in the foyer, and they'll be happy to help you. We come from a long heritage of teaching that there's a spark of the divine in every person. And it is in the spirit of that heritage that I say, let us greet the holy in our midst by turning to the person to your right and left and welcoming them here this morning. Please say with me the words by which we light our chalice. In the light of truth and the warmth of love, we gather to seek, to find, and to share. Our call to worship this morning is given to us by the Ojibwe Indians of North America, mostly residing in Canada now. Grandfather, look at our brokenness. We know that in all creation, only the human family has strayed from the sacred way. We know that we are the ones who are divided, and we are the ones who must come together to walk in the sacred way. Grandfather, sacred one, teach us love, compassion, and honor that we may heal the earth and heal each other. Some Unitarian Universalists were raised, UU as we call it, and others came from backgrounds in Judaism, Christianity, Buddhism, Hinduism, Mormonism, Paganism, Humanism. I said that one already, but it's good to say it twice. And some of us retain practices from all of those different faiths, and yet we are still Unitarian Universalists. Some of the things that hold us together are our history, our principles, and our vision. One of the things that holds this congregation together and steers our direction is our mission statement, and we say it together every Sunday. We gather in community to nourish souls, transform lives, and do justice. So in the early 1800s, Beethoven was writing music. Napoleon was having success on the battlefield. The telegraph was being used for communication across distances. In the early 1800, the Cherokee people were living in a swath of land from North Georgia up through South Carolina, Tennessee, Western North Carolina. It was about 100,000 square miles of land and in addition to that, they had hunting grounds in Kentucky, what is now Kentucky. The white European settlers were living next door to the Cherokee, the Choctaw, the Creek, all through the southeast. 
the First Nations or the Cherokee, the Choctaw, the Creek, the Muscogee, the Seminole were all trying to figure out how to deal with this encroachment of settlers. There were divisions amongst the Cherokee. Some of them felt that the traditional ways were the best. In the traditional Cherokee culture, the clan mothers choose the chief. There's a war chief, there's a peace chief, there's a principal chief. Um, it's not like you give unquestioning obedience to the chief. There's, it's just a job that you do as long as the clan mothers say you can. And when it's time for war, the clan mothers take a hatchet and put it in the rafters. And it sits there in the rafters until the clan mothers feel like it's time for the war to be over. Then they take the hatchet out and bury it in the ground. They bury the hatchet. That is traditional Cherokee governance. Some of the Cherokee wanted to survive the European encroachment by becoming as European as possible. And so the duress they adopted became more and more European. The houses they built looked very much like European houses or the settlers, white settlers' houses next to them. Some of the Cherokee were very well-educated. Uh, the principal chief at the time of the Cherokee removal was named John Ross, and he was a Harvard graduate. Many Cherokee intermarried with the Scottish, Scots-Irish, and Irish people. Um, the Scots and Scots-Irish had been there in the Carolinas since the 1600s, and there was a lot of intermarrying. Um, the Irish came a little bit more recently to the 1830s, and they weren't seen as quite the same as the English people. Um, there wasn't the concept of white back then, really, um, but if there had been, the Irish wouldn't have been white. The, uh, there were lots of signs in the windows in uh, Boston, no Irish need apply, no Irish can live here, no Irish can come in this bar. The Irish um, did not find that same prejudice amongst the Cherokee, and so many Irish and Cherokees intermarried for generations and generations. So there are many blonde, blue-eyed Cherokees. There were many Cherokees who looked uh, darker in their skin and in their hair and their eyes. Some had dark eyes and dark hair and light eyes. You can't tell by looking in the Carolinas, who's Cherokee and who's not. Also, some of the Cherokees were so wealthy, they had plantations in North Georgia. And since the Native American tribes had been enslaving one another for centuries, the idea of enslaving the Africans, who had been brought over in order to be slaves in this country, was not an unfamiliar one. And so many of the Cherokees owned slaves. Most of the educated families had an amazing number of slaves, like 25 or 30. Mo many European families, if they were going to own enslaved people, they had maybe one, two, three. If you had a big plantation, you had to have many more because otherwise it wasn't economically feasible to have this much land. But the wealth of the South was built upon the free labor of these enslaved people. And the wealth of the Cherokees was built upon the free labor of these enslaved people. The Cherokees who wanted to be more traditional 
um, decided that they were going to deal with white encroachment just by leaving. So they signed a treaty with the U.S. government, trading their lands in Georgia, North Carolina, and South Carolina for land in Indian Territory, what is now Oklahoma, but it didn't become a state till 1907, so it was just called Indian Territory. And so they, calling themselves the Kituwa, they moved out there already. So the Kituwa Band of the Cherokee, the traditionalists, um, settled around Arkansas and Oklahoma, called themselves the Old Settlers. So they were out there doing the traditional governance, while the ones who stayed behind uh, were trying their best to become more European. Between 1809 and 1820, though, before the Ketua had left, there was a chief named Sequoia, and what he did uh, was he made up an alphabet that would put the Cherokee language in writing. Now, this is an amazing feat for someone who could not read or write to create an alphabet with which you could write down this language. And what he did was he developed it and developed it eventually until there, were, there was a symbol for each syllable in the language. And then you put the, the syllables together re, and you could read. And it was a pretty easy language to print as well. And so uh, the Cherokees started a newspaper called the Phoenix, which is still being put out. So the Phoenix was the newspaper. Between 1809 and 1820, almost all the Cherokees learned how to write down their language and to read it. Part of becoming more European was that Chief John Ross decided that he and his council would put together a constitution for the Cherokee Nation. And so they put together this constitution, which was very much like the U.S. Constitution, Did they copy the U.S. Constitution? Well, kind of, but only insofar as the U.S. Constitution had pretty much copied the Iroquois law, great law of peace. Thomas Jefferson often wrote that he had studied the Iroquois great law of peace when he was putting together the U.S. Constitution. So, and the Iroquois were distant cousins of the Cherokee. Most of the Cherokees converted to Christianity, the ones who who stayed. They converted to Christianity, Baptist, Methodist, some Moravian. The missionaries lived amongst the Cherokee. And then gold was discovered in the North Georgia Hills. People rushed into the North Georgia Hills to pan for gold. And they did not really understand that the Cherokees owned their land communally. This was Cherokee land. It wasn't this guy's land or that woman's land. It was Cherokee land. And so they didn't have the same respect for trespassing as they might have if it had been private property, quote unquote. So the pressure of the gold rush uh, was felt by the Cherokees as they were overrun by the miners And the pressure of the gold rush was felt in Washington as the people with power and money became more and more resentful that their Cherokee neighbors owned all this really good land 
with this wonderful gold mineral on it, metal on it. So the talk of removal, which had been going on since 1802, and I hate to say, but Thomas Jefferson was for it, um, the talk of removal became more and more heated. There were lots of people who objected to the idea of removal of these tribes. One of them was Henry Clay, senator from Kentucky, and one of them was Daniel Webster, who was a senator, also a Unitarian. They spoke loudly about it and against it, as did the missionaries who were amongst the Cherokee. They spoke out against it, but then the state of Georgia and their churches said, hey, you guys need to obey the state, right? Rabbi Jesus said, give unto Caesar what is Caesar's, and the state is really who owns all this land anyway. Uh, One or two or three of the missionaries caved at that point. Uh, They were asked to stay neutral about it or support the state. So they stayed quiet about it. But the Methodists did not. Samuel Worcester was a Methodist minister who was a missionary in that uh, area. And he began to really raise a fuss. There were lawsuits flying. One of the lawsuits in 1831 went to the Supreme Court, where the question was, um, does the state of Georgia have sovereignty over the Cherokee Nation? And the Supreme Court justices refused to hear the case on its merits. And they said, we don't think the Cherokee are a sovereign nation. We think they're more like a ward of the state. And so, therefore, they cannot sue the state. Again, Samuel Worcester filed charges and went to court. And his case, Worcester versus the state of Georgia, went all the way to the Supreme Court in 1832. In that court case, they decided that the Cherokees were a sovereign nation and that Georgia could not have uh, jurisdiction over the Cherokee and that Georgia could not extinguish the Cherokee right to the land that they were on. The president at the time, Andrew Jackson, said, well, that's fine, Supreme Court, I hear you and I ignore you. I'm not going to enforce it. You guys, in your black robes, you go down there and enforce it because I'm not doing it. So the state of Georgia began passing laws that gradually led to the removal. Samuel Worcester was not going to be quiet and kept, along with other Cherokee lawyers and business people, kept petitioning John Ross beat a path to Washington, D.C. over and over again. Uh, Other Cherokee negotiators, some also Harvard grads, uh, one of whom is a great, 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 great grandfather cousin of one of our members here, Ron Buford. He he sent me a long email about it this week. Um, They went to Washington to negotiate over and over and over again, but trying to negotiate with President Jackson was not a pleasant experience. And they were ignored. The state of Georgia passed a law that no missionaries could live amongst the Cherokee without a special license, which, of course, they did not grant. Some of the missionaries at that point caved, um, but about 11 of them 
stayed. These 11 were taken to court. Um, At that point, only about two of them were willing to go to prison, one of whom was Samuel Worcester. He went to prison with a four-year sentence of hard labor for not removing himself because he didn't have a license that the state of Georgia was supposed to give. In May 1938, the terror began. There were Cherokee, most of them had stayed. Some saw what was coming. And a year or two before this, they had gone in a group to the U.S. agents and said, we'll sign a treaty. They signed a treaty at a place called New Echota, Georgia, and they were given uh, land in Indian territory in exchange for their land in Georgia and Carolinas. And they left in wagons with all their stuff for Indian territory, the treaty at New Echota people. But John Ross said to his people, who were still with him, uh, about 16,000 people, we're going to stay because perhaps the government will change its mind. Perhaps people will speak up. And people did speak up. It just didn't help. So in May of 1838, the soldiers came and they evicted at Bayonet Point women, children, grandmothers, grandfathers, everybody. They were only allowed to take the clothes on their backs. They were hurried out of their homes. They had to leave all their animals behind. And they were marched and taken by boat to stockades where they were held. Soldiers took about 4,000 of them on steamboats to try to get them close to Indian territory. The steamboats, uh, the, the rivers, had, they'd been, there'd been a drought. The rivers were kind of uh, low in their water line. And the slaves, who also were being driven out along with their Cherokee people, um, they had to do a lot of work removing obstacles from the, from the path of the steamships. That just wasn't working at all. There was a lot of death. There was a lot of desertion along that route that the soldiers had taken them. So uh, they decided to leave the rest of them in the stockade until cooler weather. Um, and the Cherokees had petitioned for that. They said, this kind of weather is crazy to travel in. You know, it's the south. It's 110. And um, we're dying here in the stockade of dysentery. How much more are we going to die on the path so let's wait till fall. That was unfortunate. They waited till fall, and um, the army did not want to be in charge of another disaster like the 4,000 people that they had tried to take before, some of whom made it. So they signed a contract with John Roth, the chief, a government contract so that he would be in charge of the removal. He divided the people into cohorts. He bought wagons for the cohorts. Every cohort had a doctor. Every cohort had a leader who was seasoned. Every cohort had a grave digger. And they set out in wagons and on foot into the most freakishly cold fall and winter ever. The people slept in the wagons without fire. The people slept on the frozen mud without fire. 
all the little ones died. All the old ones died. The soldiers poked people with bayonets to keep them going. The settlers who were along the route would come out of their houses and stand along the route weeping and saying to the soldiers, how can you do this? Don't do this. Please don't do this. This is horrible. How can you do this? We're so ashamed. Our forebear, Ralph Waldo Emerson, wrote a letter to the president. He said, can this possibly be true, what the newspapers are telling us, that you are doing this thing? We only state the fact, he said, that a crime is projected that confounds our understandings by its magnitude. A crime that really deprives us, as well as the Cherokees, of a country. For how could we call the conspiracy that could crush these poor Indians our government? Or the land that was cursed by their parting and dying imprecations, our country, any more? You, sir, will bring down that renowned chair in which you sit into infamy if your seal is set to this instrument of perfidy. And the name of this nation, hitherto the sweet omen of religion and liberty, will stink to the world. Jackson did not fall upon his knees and repent. The soldiers did not let them stop during the day to bury those who died. They had to carry them until nightfall. At nightfall, you could hear the sound of shovels, the sound of wailing. Even though John Ross and his wife, Quady Ross, were on a steamship, having a little bit more of a comfortable journey. She died of pneumonia and is buried near Little Rock. When the Cherokee got to Indian Territory, you had the three groups suddenly there together. The traditionalists who had left 15 years before, the new Echota Treaty people, who had left, gotten to leave with all their stuff by selling their land to the government in exchange for other land, tools, other perks. The Cherokee Council, a couple years before the New Echota Treaty, had made a law that said, if you sign away Cherokee land, the penalty is death. So the people who signed the New Echota Treaty, they were dead pretty soon after the other Cherokees got there. Assassinated. The Katua people had understood that the rest of their um, Cherokee family was coming, and they had been told, they had understood that they would go back to the traditional ways of being when they got there. But no, the Cherokees who came, who had been converted to Christianity, came along the trail. They carried their Baptist church with them piece by piece and put it back together when they got to Oklahoma. The Ketua had taken the Cherokee sacred fire with them. So that was burning, and then here comes Christianity too. How is the constitutional government and Christianity going to exist side by side with the clan mothers and the sacred fire? They just had to figure it out. 
they still haven't figured it out. There's still tensions um, in the Cherokee Nation. The Ketua people are still separate from the band, the Western Band of Cherokee, who came along the Trail of Tears. And it was not only the Cherokee who came along the Trail of Tears. The Creek were also removed, and the Muscogee, Seminole, Choctaw. They were trails and trails. The Eastern Band of the Cherokee, as we call them now, were Cherokees who melted away into the hills when removal started happening, living on squirrels and acorns like their Appalachian neighbors. Those who could pass for white did that. And there was one farmer, one European farmer, who had been adopted into the Cherokee tribe as a baby, and he had about 500 Cherokees on his land, and they were not subject to removal because they lived on private land. So now the eastern band of the Cherokees live in North Carolina, Georgia, South Carolina, uh, along with their freed slaves. So they're black Cherokees, brown Cherokees, blonde Cherokees. Um, The western band of the Cherokees has some tensions with the eastern band, along with tensions with the Kitua and tensions with the traitors uh, who signed the New Echota Treaty. And Appalachian culture, you know, has a tradition of feuding, um, and the feuds do not fade with time. And the Appalachian culture was pretty much Cherokee culture, so the feuds are still happening. Um, They bubble up now and then. Now what's happening is uh, also controversial in that the Western band is trying to uh, say to the black Cherokees, you have to have at least one ancestor who was full-blood Cherokee to be um, here and receive the perks that we receive from the government. And so the black Cherokees, who of course don't have a Native American ancestor because they were purchased by the Cherokees, um, and if they had an ancestor, it was because of um, forced breeding. So here's what happens. One of my purposes in telling you history stories is to just remind you of something you already know, that things are always complicated. You don't have this monolithic group of innocent, lovely people um, to whom a terrible thing happened. You have a group of regular people who had their own divisions and their own lives, some of whom were lovely people, I'm sure, and some of whom weren't. Um, and a terrible thing happens to them, and it is still terrible, even if it doesn't happen to a 100% lovely, uh, innocent person. It's still an outrage and an injustice. Outrage and, in, I mean, injustice has its uh, same shape wherever it rears its head. The laws are ignored. Differences are demonized. Horrors are explained away with pretty language. The oppressed turn on one another. Infighting and self-hatred does the job of the oppressor for them. And the people who do many of the worst things are just following orders. Good people speak up, and sometimes we succeed in making a change. 
And sometimes we have the privilege of ignoring what is happening. Because it is not directly a problem for us, therefore it is not really a problem. That's privilege right there. And so we stay in our homes as the Native Americans walk by. Or maybe we come out and weep. Imagine how different our U.S. would be if we had been able to envision a future, including the First Nations people, as our neighbors and our friends. We honor our ancestors and their voice as they spoke for justice. We strengthen our mission as we gather our voices to speak for justice. Let there now be an offering taken to strengthen this place and its mission. Please be generous. Please say with me the words by which we extinguish our chalice. We extinguish this flame, but not the light of truth the warmth of community, or the fire of commitment. These we hold in our hearts until we are together again. I might have looked for a Native American chant to use as the benediction, but that would have been wrong because all along the Trail of Tears, this is the song that they sang because Samuel Worcester had translated it into Cherokee. You're welcome to sing along with me. We usually say, a soul like me instead of a wretch. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a soul like me. I once was lost, but now am found. Was blind, but now I see. Go in peace. This is a presentation of the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. For more information, visit our website at www.austinuu.org.